Good morning, everyone. Could you guys just uh, say bye to the kids back there as they're going to go to kids' church? Just wave bye. Bye, everybody. I think it's just my kids today. <laughs> Good morning. I'm uh, Jason. For those of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm the pastor here at New Hope Church. Um, this is going to come as no surprise to you, but we live in a very anxious age. And this is the part of the sermon where I give you a bunch of statistics to show you that that's true, but I realize I don't think I have to convince you of that. Like We all have things that we're worried about today. There are things that overwhelm us. You feel this. Sometimes there are factors that are external to us that trigger it. For example, you might have financial challenges. There's inflation. You're struggling to pay the bills. Everything is more expensive, but you haven't gotten a raise. So there are financial challenges. There's debt to be paid. And there, then there are health challenges that we have. There's chronic pain in our body. Or we've just received a diagnosis from a doctor. Or we have a loved one, someone that we know and love, that is going through some health challenges. So we worry about that. There are relational challenges. People that are close to you. There's conflict in relationship. There are communication challenges. There's things that are unresolved. And if it's not any of those things, you experience a loneliness. Whether you're married or single or you've got people all around you, you experience loneliness. There's worry. There's anxiety as a result of that. And sometimes you worry or you're feeling anxious and you don't even know why. Just kind of hums in the background of your life. That's just your, your state, your normal state is one of anxiety. So with all of that going on in our anxious age, with that being our lived experience, how can Jesus tell us not to worry? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. We're continuing our series called The Difficult Words of Jesus, where every week we've been exploring something that Jesus said that today sounds unreasonable or difficult to accept. And today we look at the words where he says, why do you worry about your life? And it's like, well, did you, just, did you hear what I just said, Jesus? <laughs> right? Why do you worry about your life? How can Jesus tell us not to worry? When people tell you not to worry, you hear it, as a way of people saying, you're overreacting. It's not that big of a deal. Don't worry. It's not that big of a deal. That's what you hear. That, even if it's not what you're, they're saying, that's the way you interpret it. It's not that big of a deal. Or if it is a big deal, it's like they're saying, you shouldn't really care about it. Isn't that what you hear generally when people tell you not to worry? Is that what Jesus is saying? I think about what it was like for the people who were listening to Jesus in that day. And we're going to get to the passage in just a minute. It's from a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And he's talking to all kinds of people. And they go through real challenges. And he tells them, don't worry about your life. And at least for those who are closest to him, 10 out of the 12 disciples would experience a martyr's death. What was it like for them to recall these words, don't worry about your life? There are people who experience real suffering. I think that's one of the challenges of when you hear the, the promises of God in Scripture, there are prayers that you want to make your own and pray. Like the other day, um, I was reading in the Psalms, I forgot which Psalm it was, where uh, the writer says, those who fear you lack no good thing. And I want to believe that, and I want to hold on to it. Or David in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You have something like that, and then you have 
what you really experience in life, suffering, disappointment, uncertainty, or for the disciples, a martyr's death, danger, persecution. So this is not a call. The call to not worry does not mean that we will be unaffected by the brokenness and evil of this world. At least that's not what he meant for his disciples. He would warn them about suffering. He would warn them about persecution and how there was evil in the days ahead. That's not what it meant. It's not that we would be unaffected by evil and brokenness, but it's that we could have hope in the midst of that. That's my hope for us today, that we can have hope in the midst of this. So I want you to think about something that's causing you anxiety or something that's causing you to worry right now. Let's give it a, a good, awkward 10 seconds, okay? Think about it. What's making you worry? I just want Jesus' words to wash over us today as we read this passage. The passage isn't actually about worry. It's not what it's about. But he talks about it. It's not about worry. It's actually about two things that lead us to worry, though, and prioritize things above God. All right? So it's not really about worry, but it's two things that lead us to worry and therefore prioritize things above God. And so he's going to have us locate two things. And you're going to see your worry in relation to that. Our treasure and our trust. Let's look at the first thing our treasure. Let's read 19 through 21 and then verse 25. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 25. After all of this, he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus eventually tells them, don't worry about your life. Okay? Don't worry about be, and be anxious about these things. But before that, what he does for his disciples is he has them locate their treasure. He tells them to locate their treasure because that's where your heart's going to be, okay? So, for example, the, the heart is, in saying that's where your heart's going to be, it's the seat of your emotions. It's like the compass that orients your life. It, your entire being will be led in that direction if that's where your heart is. And so, if you find yourself overwhelmed, your heart is overwhelmed with worry and anxiety. What you want to do is then trace it back and ask yourself, if that's where my heart is, then what is my treasure? What's leading me there? What do I treasure and I value so much? What do I love in this situation that causes my heart to be overwhelmed in the way that it is? So think about that. Ask yourself that question. Where is, locate, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Jesus gives us two things here. Doesn't always, our, our concerns don't always fit neatly in this, but he does give two things, two kinds of treasure. He talks about permanent treasure, and he talks about impermanent treasure. So there are the things that you treasure, that the, the impermanent stuff is the stuff that end up getting eaten by moths, they get destroyed, they don't last, or at worst, they're fleeting, Things that you treasured that are fleeting. And then he talks about things that are permanent. Things that are eternal. That last in the next life. 
And ultimately what we will discover is God. So these two things, depending on what you treasure, it'll affect where your concerns and your anxiety and your worry is. You might still be like, Jason, I don't get it. I don't understand how this is related to worry and anxiety. Why are you asking me to locate my treasure? Well, most of our anxiety, well, not all of it, it often is, our worry and our anxiety is the fear of losing something that we love. Why are we anxious today? Why do we worry? Because there's something that we treasure, something we value, something we esteem, something we love, and we are anxious because we find ourselves unable to control the outcome of that. I don't know if I'm going to lose this. I don't know what's going to happen. There's this thing that I value so much that I will orient my life around it, and I'm anxious because I wonder if I'm going to lose it, if I'm going to have it. I can't control that. And so you want to ask yourself, what is that? What do you treasure? What do you fear losing? Is it something momentary? Is it something impermanent that holds your heart captive today? Is it something momentary, fleeting, impermanent that holds you captive today? This is what uh, James K. Smith wrote in a book called On the Road with Augustine. I've read this quote before, and I'll just read it again. He writes, where we rest is a matter of what and how we love. Where we rest is a matter of what and how we love. Our restlessness is a reflection of what we're trying to enjoy as an end in and of itself. What we look to as a place to land. The heart's hunger is infinite, which is why it will be ultimately disappointed by anything merely finite. So let me, say, let me just tell you what he's trying to say there. He's saying that his, your heart is always trying to land somewhere. It's always trying to find rest in something. And it's going to try to find rest in whatever it is that you love. If you want an imperfect example of this, okay? Um, imagine you're on your laptop. You don't have your charger. And you find out you've got 20% left. What are you going to do? To preserve battery. What are you going to do? Anybody? Not use it. Okay. What else? What was that? Turn down the brightness. If you don't have, if you don't have the out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised nobody said this yet. So you to remove all the pages that you need to? Power saving? Okay, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have asked this question. I should have come up with something else. I, I told you it was imperfect, right? Nobody turns off the Wi-Fi? Save? Okay, you know what? Yeah, we, I would turn off the Wi-Fi. Because what, what that's doing is it's in, in the background, it's trying to find a place to land, right? And it ends up draining your batteries. So they recommend that if you are low on battery, you turn off Wi-Fi. It's like the constant search to land somewhere is draining. And I would say it's imperfect because your heart in some way is trying to do that. It's trying to land somewhere, but it's landing in things that are finite. And it's trying to land in what you love. But those things that you love are never enough to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. 
So if it's success, your heart is trying to land in success and security and productivity and perfection and ambition and control and accomplishment and influence over others. And if that's what you love, guess what? Your heart is only going to rest when it accrues enough of those things. Your heart's too big for it. So it has to have enough success, enough security, enough productivity, enough ambition and control and accomplishment and influence over others. And that's why it is never enough. And this is why Augustine says our hearts are restless until it finds rest in thee, in you. It needs a place to land. I remember this quote by Kay Smith a few years ago when I had just gotten done with work. I'd done everything I wanted to do, cleared my inbox, I checked everything off the list, and I found myself anxious, and I didn't know why. It's because you're always just, you know, there are a number of reasons for this. We're often used to just this frenetic pace, and we don't stop, but I felt anxious. My heart was racing. I needed to slow down my breathing, and I just decided to just lay flat on my bed while I just kept sighing, like every five seconds, like just exhaling. And I started to ask myself, remembering this quote, where is my heart trying to land right now? Like, it's trying to find a place to land somewhere. And in order to answer that question, I had to ask, what is it that I treasure right now? What do I love? Because it's trying to land in something that I love. What's holding my heart captive? And the answer to that was productivity. I'm addicted to productivity. I struggle to find enjoyment in things unless there's something that's immediately, where I can say, like, oh, this accomplished this. If I'm with my kids, right, it's got to be productive. Control, I love control. I love success. I want to be successful. My heart is trying to land in these things, all things that I love. And I realize that in order to find rest, I have to love the one who first loved me and gave himself for me. And so I want to ask you today, what is it for you? This is not your worry and your anxiety. You might wonder, what does love have to do with it? Love has everything to do with it. If you want to ask yourself, why am I anxious? Why am I worried? Ask yourself, what do I treasure? Because that's where your heart is trying to land. If you could locate your treasure, you'll find your heart and what's holding it captive today. The second thing, we locate our treasure. We also locate our trust. Let's read 24 through 35. I'm sorry, 34. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek, you seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Again, he says it, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus says life is about more than just your food and your clothing, which are important. It would have been important for the people of that day. You know, their context as they're listening to Jesus is they were under the thumb of Roman oppression. They were constantly reminded about their subjugation as a people. They would go somewhere and they would have to pay a tax, which would remind them that Rome is in control. They are not their own, and there is an oppressor that they have to pledge allegiance to, right? So in the midst of that, Jesus is telling them, don't be anxious. Don't worry. They have legitimate concerns. But what happens when we are consumed and preoccupied by these things? You're constantly worried. What happens? We say, I'm going to find solutions. I've got to do something about this. And money or mammon is my hope. It's not just a resource. It becomes the source from which you think everything good comes in life. Security and comfort and control and happiness. It's not a resource. It becomes a source for you. It becomes a hope. And we start serving money. We start orienting our lives and our time and our priorities around what money promises us. Which is, if you have more of me, you'd be more content. If you had more of me, you'd have more status. If you had more of me, you'd have more security, more comfort, more control over your life. I love the, the definition or, or, or something that Andy Crouch says in his book, The Life We're Looking For When It Comes to Money. Money essentially promises us abundance without dependence. Right? It frees us for our, our, our neediness and our dependence on others and maybe even dependence on God. Why depend on God if money can give me these things? And Jesus says, you can't do that. You're either going to see one of them as a source and hate the other or hate one and trust the other and love the other. You'll either orient your life around money as your hope or you'll orient your life around God as our hope. So then the question is, if I'm not going to look at money as the source, it's supposed to free me. The question then is, who will take care of me? That's like Jesus anticipates that question. Right after he says, you can't serve God and money, it's like he anticipates the question, like we're asking then, who's going to take care of me? Right after that, he says, therefore I tell you, don't worry. God takes care of the birds of the heavens. He clothes the lilies of the field, and you are worth so much more than they are. If God feeds sparrows and clothes lilies, wouldn't he take care of you? And so when you believe Jesus, guess what happens? It's two things that he talks about in the therefores that he has given this is like active trust. This isn't passive. When we begin to trust God, when we locate our trust, is it in money or is it in God? Is it in my own efforts or is it in God? It'll be active and you can see it evidence in something in your life. You will not seek after these things like people who don't believe in God. You'll seek the kingdom first. So the evidence of this trust is going to be seen in your priorities. Instead of seeking the added things first and then maybe the kingdom 
You're going to see God in his righteousness and love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and believe that he will add to you what you need. So this trust is first evidence in your priorities. Are you so freed by your trust in God and his ability to take care of you and his generosity that your focus and your priorities are on his righteousness, his goodness, and how you can glorify him with your life? The second thing that you see here is in verse 34. You begin to learn within your, you live within your limits. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Which means, I'm, I, I'm trying to predict and plan, which is not bad to try and plan. But i got to live within my limits. I'm, I'm, God is taking care of that. Like, I'm, not, I'm not there 24 hours from now. I'm not even there. Like, I, I'm not there a month from now, uh, you know, or even five minutes from now. i got to live within this moment that God gives me and believe that he's going to give me what I need in this moment. So as you begin to trust God that he's going to provide for you, it frees you up to prioritize the kingdom, prioritize God and his righteousness, and it also frees you up to live within the limits that God has given you. I'm right here. I love this thing that Zach Eswine in his book, Sensing Jesus, would say sometimes just to remind himself of his limits. He would hold his desk wherever he's sitting, just hold on to it, to remind him that he is local, he's here, he's not everywhere. Our anxiety is over all over the place. Ah, oh, what about that? And over here, and the thing I have to take care of here, and that stuff tomorrow. And by holding the table, he would remind himself that as this earth turns on its axis and revolves around the sun, I am here and nowhere else. I'm present. You can seek his kingdom first, and you can live within your limits. That, your limits. That's active trust. We don't realize how vulnerable we are on a daily basis. About... Between now and Monday afternoon, you are going to be in a state of total vulnerability. You will. Between now and Monday at 12 o'clock, you're going to be in a state of total vulnerability. I first realized this when I was reading Tish, uh, Tish Harrison Warren's book, A Prayer in the Night, where she describes what night was like for most of human history. We're often oblivious to it. She says, imagine a world without electric light where you needed a torch or a dimly lit candle in the middle of the night and there's no one to call if there's a thief or a robber. There's no police that you can call. You have no cell phone, no landline. There's no ambulance if someone gets sick, right, and is ill, deathly ill. It's a world without chain locks and deadbolts. It's vulnerable to wild beasts, vulnerable to weather, and for most of human history, night was terrifying. But even with all our technology, every night we faced our truest state. And this is what she writes. In deep darkness, even the strongest among us are small and defenseless. Like, how long would you survive in the woods? I would have to go glamping. There's a reason I don't, I don't take my kids camping. I wouldn't survive. I would, like, it'd be everyone for ourselves. Like, kids, you can take care of yourself, right? I'll see you back in the city, right? We rely so much on technology, we don't realize how vulnerable we are. But the nighttime is a time to remember that. Because 
It, it reminds us that we need someone else to look out for us. Like, even as much as I, I, you know, as I try to be vigilant over my family, I can only stay awake for so long. Every night I have to confront that I'm vulnerable, I'm not in control, and I can't even control and protect the people that I love. At some point, I'm going to have to surrender to that vulnerability and trust someone else to watch over me. Every night I depend upon someone else to sustain me. But then the alarm clock goes off, I rise, and guess what? I live as if I don't need anybody. I live as if it all depends on me. And like the one that's going to sustain me and get me through the day and take care of me is myself. But one third of your life is going to be spent in a state of total vulnerability. We have to rely upon somebody else to look out for you and to keep you safe, to sustain you. And when you wake up, you realize like they would have for most of human history, God has given me another day. God has watched over me. I'm awake today. I'm alive today. God took care of me. So then when you locate your trust, I want you to ask yourself, is it in dependence on yourself and what money can give you and what you can accrue for yourself and do accomplish with your own effort? Or are you, are you now awakened to your own vulnerability and realize, no, actually, my trust is in the Lord who takes care of me in ways that I don't even realize on a daily basis. Jesus would essentially ask us, on the way over here today, when you got off the train or the bus or parked your car, did you notice the birds? Did you think about who would take care of them? I know we're surrounded by concrete, but imagine there was a lily somewhere, right? <laughs> did you notice lilies? Did you notice flower? Did you notice flowers? Did you notice anything that's green and wonder who's taking care of them, who's clothing the grass of the field? You and I didn't think about that, but God did is what Jesus is saying. And if he did it for them, wouldn't he do it for you? He tells us over and over again in, in Matthew 6, which is what this passage is for, from. He tells us repeatedly that the Father sees Matthew 6, 4, don't practice your righteousness in front of others. That's the only reward you're going to get, their praise. But when you, when you are doing something righteous and something good, do it in secret so your Father who sees you will reward you. Two verses later, when you pray, don't do it in front of others, but go in secret because your Father who sees you will reward you. Two verses later, 6, 8, your Father knows what you need before you even ask. He sees us. He sees our needs. 6, 18, when you fast, don't make yourself gloomy and don't go announcing it like the hypocrites do, but when you do it, do it in secret because your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. It's like he says over and over again to our worry today. It's like the culmination of that is the Father sees you. So why do we worry? What if some of our anxiety and our worry today is he doesn't see? I don't know if, he, he, I don't know if he's looking. I think he stopped paying attention a long time ago. I don't think he sees. But I imagine what it was like for these disciples. And family, as we're listening to Jesus' words right now, here is Jesus imploring his disciples that the Father sees, being the greatest and ultimate expression, the most vivid picture that God sees us in our sinful state, in our broken state, and is willing to show us his generosity by giving us his son. If you struggle to believe that the Father sees you today, see Jesus, see the ultimate most vivid expression 
that he sees you and he will not withhold what or whom he loves. He will not withhold his best from you. He is gracious, loving, wise, and good enough to provide. When we see Jesus, we see the generosity of the Father. We don't, we don't have to believe the promise of mammon. We don't have to believe the promise of money. We don't have to trust in ourselves. But we can look at Jesus, be so compelled, begin to treasure him and trust him, and therefore be free of our anxieties and find rest. We can actually seek his kingdom first and believe he will add everything we need and we can begin to live within our limits. We can live within today. When we're redirected to see Jesus, we can treasure and trust him, and therefore our hearts can finally find rest from all our worry. I started this by saying, um, we live in a broken world, and we live in a world full of suffering. And Christians, when we, when we, if you're a Christian today, when we say don't worry, it's not, we can't say it in a way that is oblivious to the suffering of this world. Like Jesus is saying this not to worry. As someone who's going to absorb the violence and evil and brokenness of this world into his body and experience God's wrath for it on our behalf. So he's not oblivious to the evil in this world. Nobody's going to know it like Jesus. And yet he is the most childlike person that's ever walked into this, on the face of this earth. That's what Paul Miller says in his book, uh, A Praying Life. He talks about Psalm 23, right? The, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then that very famous verse, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And I love this thing that Miller says, and I, and I just want to end with this. Like, you can be cynical or you can be like a child. And please don't hear me this morning as saying, you're never going to experience darkness. Or that it's going to change as soon as you get home. But this is what Miller says. He says, both the child and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The cynic focuses on the shadows and the darkness. But the child upon the shepherd. You and I are going to walk this week through the valley of the shadow of death. But we can focus on the darkness or we can focus on the shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Let's pray.